Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. My name is Amit Paul, as it has been for some almost 40 years uh, now. And uh, I'm so excited about this conversation. I, I sometimes do little um, intros, but I, I, I don't think I can frame this. I'm still a little bit too scattered. I'm just, but I went through my notes from our pre-call and I was like, this is exciting stuff. And it's like right on the edge of my current thinking and knowing. And then I get to meet and speak to someone who has been thinking and knowing things in this domain for, for a long time. So very, very welcome to the podcast, Glenda Eoyang. Thank you, Amit. Did I get the last name right? It's Oyang as if it were Irish. Oyang. I, I um, like uh, to keep things simple. So I, I tend to do that for myself. <laughs> and so maybe that complicates things for you. Um, we'll see. Uh, but um, the first question that I ask all my guests is, um, who are you, Glenda Oyang? Do you always start with the most difficult question? I do. <laughs> um, so who am I? Um, I'm a curious person who sees... Uh, challenges and ways in which the current paradigm is not working. And so I challenge it in a variety of ways. That's one way to think about who I am. Who I am is also, uh, I grew up in the panhandle of Texas in the plains where there was much more sky than anything else. And so I uh, structure and navigate with the sky and the changing seasons. Mm. I am also a teacher and have been from the very beginning. I live on a little lake and I uh, watch the seasons change on that lake. So I'm a curious person and a teacher, a knower and a wanderer. Mm. And a person who's very happy to be in this conversation with you today, Amit. <laughs> a knower and a wonder. I, I love that. And uh, yeah. So it makes me curious uh, to, I'm still curious to know a little bit about, about your path because we never talked about that last time. But what, mm. what brought you here or yeah, what, what put you on this in this general direction? <laughs> <laughs> um, the undergraduate work that I did, what I studied, um, was a curriculum that was a unified curriculum of the great books of the Western world. And so we began with the early pre-Socratics and across curricula. So we read ancient mathematics and philosophy and literature and science from Orem through Aristotle, freshman year, and then junior year, were the um, moving into the Romans, reading the Bible as literature and philosophy, and then the rationalists, and then the phenomenologists. So in the science, we went only as far as Einstein. So we got to 1906, but we were reading original texts and mm. exploring what those texts said and meant. And so in that process, I went in really not liking the physical sciences much at all. I thought 
if the answer's in the back of the book, and that's what I understood science to be, I wasn't particularly interested because somebody else can always look in the back of the book. <laughs> but I realized that science and mathematics were themselves evolving, emerging ways of knowing. And so that process of working across curricula and in ancient texts really brought me to questions around paradigm shifting, seeing how it is that people build as deeply and completely as they can in one set of assumptions. How do they realize when those assumptions break down? And then what do they develop as the next step beyond? And so that pattern throughout the history and philosophy of science was just fascinating to me. Mm. So then in the late 1980s, I was an entrepreneur working in computer documentation and training growing business, active business, successful business, and then suddenly the assumptions that I'd held no longer worked, and I mm. was myself in need of a paradigm shift. And as I read leadership literature and management literature and economics uh, of the time, I couldn't find anything that seemed that it was going to be robust enough for whatever the next stage would need to be for my business. But I tripped over complexity science. And began to realize that in that way of seeing that the world, the assumptions about open systems, high dimensionality, nonlinearity, that in that paradigm were hints and tools and processes that could inform my next business paradigm and life paradigm. So I began a journey of exploring that space and sharing what I found with others. Um, in the late 1990s, I decided to do um, formal academic research in that area. And as I did, I discovered some fundamental patterns that shaped that paradigm. And so in 2003, I started an institute to continue to develop and to disseminate those insights about theory and practice. And so for the last 20 years, that's what we've been doing, building a network of people around the world. There are about a thousand people who've been trained in this fundamental way of seeing the world and practice it on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I have created the field, but I continue to explore the field. It, like the thing it studies, is open and high dimension and nonlinear. And so it just continues to evolve and holding that space for myself and my community has just been really fascinating. Mm. And so I feel that the journey just is as exciting and, and challenging in some ways today as it was when I first started the journey 30 years ago. Yeah, maybe double click on the paradigm shift thing. Because <laughs> I... I <laughs> Or yeah, maybe not thing, maybe essence or something. We'll see. Uh, but um, there's a there there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I I find. I mean, yeah. So we were joking earlier that that I'm new to this space uh, of of thinking in terms of of patterns, um, and doing that rigorously. Uh, so it's not just kind of offhandedly throwing around 
conspiracy theories, but rather it's it's like proper sort of actual thinking and looking and and working way backward, like working backwards from effects and, and really looking at like what seems to be the drivers and what what can we uncover uh, here and like how what are the sort of simple. I haven't looked so much at the mathematics, but it's like what are the simple equations or or like engines that seem to be at the bottom of generating this particular pattern um, and how can we address those um, and at the same like what I it's a popular thing to say in our circles that we are in a time between worlds uh, and that we are in a paradigm shift or in a phase shift or something like that and, and some really smart people are saying it and I find myself uh, believing that and acting as if that's true and at the same time constantly trying to find more proof to sort of refute that fact or like to deal with um, like the the sort of the nervous system or like my proclivity is to believe that I'm so unique uh, anyways like that's my that's my programming like I'm so special I'm so unique and then the more patterns I discover I'm like it's not true at all like this has been going on for ages and like a lot of these questions are perennial like they're always there they seem to be so I'm, I'm just curious about your view of the paradigm shift that we are or or might be in or what how how do you view the times that we are in at the moment mm-hmm. so um i think you're right it is both um unique and ancient um the way that i'm thinking about the particular paradigm shift we're in now there was a real gift that we were given at the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And that came in a whole series of paradigm shifts leading up to it, including Newton and Galileo and others who really set a frame, Descartes, for us to be able to say, this is a finite space within which there can be coherence, clarity, and control. And that frame was so useful in many, many ways. And so we developed literature and practice and mathematics and science and business and relationship, definitions of psychology and so many things in that frame because it was so useful. And it has its limitations Mm. and it has its violence and its destruction and its lack of equity, and its lack of clarity, and its lack of humanity. And so there's so many things about our lives and our worlds that are not closed, they're open, that are not low dimension, where there's a dependent and independent variable that -hmm. are driving all the process, that are nonlinear, so that causes or effects and the relationships are... But our tools of enlightenment are not sufficient to cope with such a reality. So for most of the 20th century, we were trying to take this rich, multifariate reality and squeeze it into those bounds of enlightenment knowing. And with complexity science, we began to say, there is a way to be reasonable about something that is not rational in that enlightenment sense. So always there was a world outside of that enlightenment 
rationality, but it was seen as being intuitive or spiritual or non-rational, non-reasonable, something different then. And so there was this split between what was inside that rational realm and the rest of the world. And evidence and belief and living and work, identity, were in one of those realms or the other. And often they were at odds with each other. But we've come to a place now where that distinction is not serving us well, I think. And that what we need in this new paradigm is something that includes and transcends those. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the things we know for sure about paradigms in the past. Paradigm shifts. They haven't been, here's where we were and we're going to go over there and get a new paradigm. Always real paradigm shifts have transcended and incorporated what was before. So Einstein didn't reject Newton. He just said, it's a partial picture. Mm. And so what we're needing to do in this paradigm shift, I believe, is to transcend that dichotomy between those two ways of knowing and to see them, the ways in which they're a continuum from closed, well, if we think about it as high constraint, so high constraint, knowing and work toward less constraint, less constraint, less constraint, and to be able to work with and live with reasonable intention in worlds, even where there isn't the constraint that allows us to feel complete knowing and complete power. And so for me, that's what this transition is about, is how do we recognize extremes, build capacity in extremes, approach them without judgment, and then in any given moment, know where we need and want to be to be most fit for function and generative and what's next. So that's what I see about this paradigm shift and what our work is about. Um, one of the things that goes in that is a dichotomy between theory and practice. Mm -hmm. And paradigm shifts have, I don't want to say anything extreme, but have never um, come out of a world of theory. Because theory is by nature self-referential, axiomatic, structured with certain assumptions and building within those assumptions. And that that's the power of a rational structure, theoretical structure. Real paradigm shifts come when those don't match the practice, hmm. when there are anomalies that come in the real world that challenge and challenge and challenge those assumptions, and that then the new paradigm has to find a way to incorporate both the truth of the old and its anomalies in whatever is next. So that's, that's what I think is happening in this time. And so your frustration about saying, sure, there's a paradigm shift. Yes, the world is going to be different. Yes, we need different capacities. But what is that really? And how do I live in that space? And how do I help my children and my colleagues live in that space? It's one thing to say, yes, it's there. And it's another thing to know in this moment, in this meeting, how do I approach this moment from the other side of the paradigm mm. and transcend my own ways of knowing. And it, that set of tools is the set of tools that we've 
tried to evolve and continue to evolve over time. How do you stand in a moment and engage both the closed, predictable, structured, highly constrained world of responsibility and accountability and at the same time that you hold the massively open and generative and surprising world of spirit. And it's not really a balance. It's not really an equilibrium. It's a dance between the mm-hmm. two. So that's that's the way we see this paradigm shift. And it's not very coherent. Um, we've seen that too. It's so fun to read literature that came right before a paradigm shift in the history and philosophy of science. Um, there's a series of letters, for example, between Haley of Haley's Comet, Halley, and Newton, as mm. they're both wrestling with this paradox between movement and gravity locally and movement the celestial spheres and they're trying to figure this out and how does it work and these letters are so poetic where they're trying to grasp onto metaphors that describe the what they're observing in a language that's somehow coherent in the discourse that they're coming from and so i think very often when we're in conversation that basically that's what we're trying to do too mm-hmm. oh, yeah there's so much here um one what I'm hearing you speak to in a way is that um another maybe it's not another way of but but it's a, there's some novelty in that for me it's like to to really lean into paradigm shifts as possibilities for reframing that that it is like as like a zooming in or zooming out there is there is um it's not about refuting or or throwing away at least not all of it uh, <laughs> <laughs> of the old uh, of the old but rather it's it's about um re-exploring or rediscovering or re re something um reframe um what was there in in a different and put it in a different light if you will uh and then what you're speaking to now towards the end is that i, I love that you introduced <laughs> the word to me which is like the enlightenment rationality uh, which is very different than other types of rationality, like that there are different types of rationality uh, in a way, because I find myself often doing things for um, like quote unquote, no reason or for, you know, because it, it doesn't make any sense, like things like that, but it's, it does it just, it only doesn't make any sense or it's only for no reason in a particular frame and in a particular way of looking at the world. Um, if I tap into a, a larger or a, a different type of knowing than my, rational mind is yet sort of found words for, um, it makes perfect sense. And it's, it's absolutely reasonable to, to the particular thing. But I'm curious about the grasping as well. And, and then, and then uh, I mean, Descartes gets a bad rep um, <laughs> in, in a lot of what we're doing, like with his, his uh, move. But I, I heard somebody expressing empathy or sympathy or compassion for him in terms of like that he was, he was in a world where Europe was really tearing itself apart uh, and, and over minuscule, what seemed to be minuscule details in some book uh, that two like different people had interpreted differently. Um, and 
he was trying to find sort of the common ground to unite people uh, in in something new where where we wouldn't um, do that particular type of killing that was happening then. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about the grasping and and the the parts and the holes, if you will, and like what the if we talk about reframing, then then that seems to be like this pulling back and looking at a at a particular hole from a from a further distance would reveal different things than looking really close. Uh, yet they're still there in a way. I'm wondering if there's a if I use that as a prompt and not a question. What what comes up for you? Yeah, it's it's really quite interesting because there's a paradox there that even though we see and think about and have adopted Descartes as some kind of universal, it emerged from a very particular situation for mm. a particular person, particular history and insight that he had, tools that he had at hand and was amplified. I mean, there were hundreds of people at the time who were wrestling with the same question, but the ecology amplified his voice and brought it forward to us. All of those very local, very particular conditions were necessary for this universal to emerge in our consciousness shared. Mm. And I think that that's still true now, that there are ways in which there are individual particular perspectives and people and groups who are wrestling with individual particular local ecological questions in creative ways, and that some of those are going to be amplified and become universals in whatever's the next paradigm. Some of them will simply solve their local issues. Some of them will come together in a larger picture. And so this emergent self-organizing process of each of us in our local spaces doing the best we can with the history we have and the places that we stand and sharing those will allow this new ecology to, to emerge. It's part of the reason why the practice is so important that we have to test ideas in every place where we are. And there are three really simple practices that we use I mean, to do that or to, to help ourselves and to help others be present in the moment with the knowledge of that potential, but also the reality of the present mm. working together. And one of them is an iterative problem-solving learning process that we use in all different contexts and in all different scales. And it's it's almost ludicrous that it's so simple. I mm-hmm. wish it were as easy as it is simple. But it's, what do you see? Mm-hmm. So what does it mean? Now what can you do? And when you take that action in a complex system, it shifts and you're brought immediately into the next what. So if in the so what, you recognize that you're working in a highly constrained space with accountability being important and outcomes being measurable, you move into a so what, which is traditional enlightenment rational. Mm -hmm. If you get into the so what and you realize you're working in an open, high dimension, non-linear space, then the so what can be your physical somatic response or a story, or a tale, or a a vision. But no matter what that is, it converges again into a now what, because we're responsible human beings and we take action in a moment. And then it begins again. So that's what comes up for me when you 
Beautiful. You ask that. Oh, that's the first practice. The second practice is um, standing in inquiry so that even though in a moment Descartes may be absolutely the best choice, we hold in the back of our minds um, maybe my Inuit grandmother has something to say about this as well, or maybe the story that I've heard, or maybe there's something that's arising in me that is the intelligence that needs to happen. So holding on, this is another paradox, holding on to what you know and yet wondering that that's core to the work that we do. And then the third is what we call pattern logic. And that's the ability, not traditional logic, which is Aristotelian and linear and works beautifully in that enlightenment world, but a logic in which the characteristics of the pattern hold the potential of the future and the actuality as it emerges. And so that's the language that we use to think about the power of patterns in a way that's not only intuitive. Intuitive is important, but it's also limited in that it's so um, subjective. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it difficult to have it as a frame of collective action, unless there's a guru of some kind whose subjectivity has preference and privilege over others. Um, But how do you then take that pattern knowing that has been so subjective and put it somehow in a common decision-making, action-taking space. And that's what pattern logic allows you to do. And so those are the three practices that we think in this moment are going to generate whatever needs to be that next paradigm as it emerges. We don't know what it's going to be, but those three practices we find are practical ways to let us live in this interstitial space. That word. I love that word, interstitial Isn't that a fun word? Yeah, it's wonderful. It's a really, it's a fun word. So I wonder how that speaks to your sense of being aware that there's a paradigm shift coming and yet knowing that there's a deep history, that it's unique, but that it's a continuation. How does that speak to this question that you're holding? Um, volumes. <laughs> I mean, it it is. It feels very much like the the capacity, maybe, or the stance that I'm that I am um, working to cultivate uh, in a way. Like in a in, in some aspects, I'm I'm trying to accumulate knowledge uh, in terms of being able to make more different frames available to me. Um, in in some like there is there is something around i find there's a also a paradox or like a a seeming it's not a proper paradox but it's a seeming paradox around sort of intuition and and like oh you should just go with your intuition and and like you don't have to read all that stuff anymore you can just kind of feel into it versus um actually basing it on um prior knowledge and and to really afford and allow yourself to stand on the shoulders of of Greats, and it doesn't mean that everything's relevant, but it also doesn't mean that nothing's relevant. It's like a there's a discernment there to be to be made, and I really like what you're saying with in terms of the pattern log- logic. Uh, you know that increase, like the openness. It's like the humility. It's like I seek to understand component rather than seeking to explain, which is it's helpful, 
and, and has been a really hard stance to attain because I love explaining <laughs> things. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's the teacher in me. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, and the pattern logic, I mean, that's the one where I'm, I feel very much like a novice still. Like I don't have a good methodology for myself to discover those patterns in a in um, rigorous way, I would say. I, I think, because we spoke last time and you, you were giving me some of the, you know, like both, you know, when you look at like murmurations and like the math behind murmurations and like that there are like these incredibly complex patterns that emerge from like very simple seemingly um, decision rules, uh, if you will, or like very simple sort of drivers of, of, at the fundament, or like even the Lorentz attractors, or like the, or like all of those like attractor basins and all of that stuff. With the, I haven't gotten there yet in terms of in terms of my studies and complexity, but I've, mm, yeah, I, I really like that frame. It's simple and it rings very very true to what I'm practicing uh, in a less structured way. Mm. That's lovely. That was the kind of question that I was holding in the mid-90s when I was seeing these systems self-organize. So I was doing a lot of facilitation, a lot of training, a lot of community work. And I would see these individual agents, independent agents, coming together as sometimes creating something really beautiful in the moment, sometimes not sometimes ending up in conflict and bifurcated system. And my question was, what is it in these systems that is setting conditions for them to be their most coherent best and be most free? What, what does that look like? And so I began a journey of studying as much as I could in each of the complexity sciences. And we talk about complexity sciences if it's one thing. It's not. It's many disciplines. In fact, almost every discipline, physical and social sciences, have some edge at which they're looking at complex systems. Mm. So I, I went as far as I could in reading people who were trying to deal with these surprising emergent systems, trying to build a logic which went beyond the predict and control logic, and asking, what do they have in common? Uh, Mandelbrot and Prigogine and Perbach and mm-hmm. Craig Reynolds and people who were doing all different kinds of complexity work. And at the same time, I continued my practice and asking, what is it that I'm seeing in these real groups, in these real moments? And in that process, there were three features to the systems that I saw come up over and over and over again so that every one of those approaches had these three features. Sometimes they would hold one constant to make it easier to deal with the other two, but there were three features of the systems that seemed Mm -hmm. essential to their potential and to their actual transformations. And those three then became the core of what we talk about as pattern logic. And they're kind of meta variables at a very high level. And then we see them as patterns in their mathematical relationships. We also see patterns in real experience, in the moment, in physical space, patterns that emerge in social space, mm. patterns that we can recognize and measure in kind of objective world. 
And then there's a space in between that is the space where we navigate for sense-making and that we call that mid-level abstractions. And so there are lots of tools and techniques and uh, approaches that we have that allow us to mediate mediate between this abstraction of the characteristics of complexity and the world in which we live and work. So we've got about 35 tools. Some of them we've borrowed from other places. Some of them we've created ourselves to capture the fundamental characteristics. And that mid-level abstraction, that tool space is open. So we find from any discipline, whatever tools you have and bring in, everything from Writing surveys fits into that space. Um, Nonlinear dynamics fits into that space. Psychology and social approaches. There are many, many, many ways to mediate between this abstraction of what a pattern is and this reality of how it emerges in this moment. And so as you're collecting ideas and perspectives and things, you're, you're building a kind of repertoire That's a bridge, I think, between the most abstract, coherent way of knowing and the most most challenging immediate reality that we all face. Mm. I I love that. Because I think what I'm finding as well as I'm acquiring more of these types of mid-level tools um, is that uh, initially I was stuck in... um, analogy space or like analogy, the analogy trap, which is like, oh, it's just like, you know, and which kind of prevented me sometimes from completing the motions. Like stop, like I, I stopped short of, of going through the entire movement, which um, there's so much information lost when you stop short of, of like completing the motion. Because a lot of the times, at least in my experience, like you, when you hit that roadblock, when you, when you hit that thing that, that pushes back against you and you're like, you feel utterly lost or, or um, you know, conquered by whatever you're trying to do. That's, that's where the gold lies if you're able to kind of stay with it, like stay with the trouble, you know, right, with uh, the meadows. Um, things. So it's like there's something, there's something there. Like I had to really learn how to framework. I've never gotten to learn that, how to, how to really work with a framework and to stick with it, like to, to really take seriously this idea of the, I mean, the student and the teacher and the teachings, like that the teachings, like there's a, there's a tradition, there's a, there's a wisdom in, if I've chosen to employ a tool, then I should do that for good reason, because I have some trust in it. And then I need to kind of have, have faith to stick with it, to also complete its, uh, complete the dance, if you will. I mean, it's not, it's not waltz unless you just, if you only do two of the three <laughs> steps. <right? laughs> that's true. Yeah. yeah. That's a great, that's a great analogy. That whole question about isomorphism being understanding, this is like that, and so I understand it. This is like that, so I understand it, uh, can be very satisfying initially because it gives you the sense of control and the sense of comprehension, Um, but it's not very actionable. Because when it comes to action in the really concrete world, this is not like that. It can look like that. It can smell like that. We can think it is. We can name it in the same way. But when it comes time to take action, it's the differences among them that are really key. And so we make a distinction between description, which is the 
kind of symptoms of or uh, superficial picture of or um, yeah, the seeing, the isomorphism description and mm-hmm. explanation, mm-hmm. which gives you uh, an insight into not just what emerges, but how it emerges. And so whether you choose systems dynamics modeling or pattern logic, each of those has some set of assumptions around what is a causal relationship within the system. So when you say sticking with a method until you see it's like, okay, for this moment, I'm going to accept this set of assumptions that go along with this frame. I'm going to see how far it will take me in an explanation. And also being aware in the back of my mind, maybe that set of assumptions isn't the best set of assumptions in this moment. Maybe there's another framework that I need that has a different set of assumptions that's closer to the reality that I need. But this question of looking for an explanation that gives you some path for action, enough understanding to act, is very different from the um, description and looking for understanding. And so that was one of the things that really moved me in our first conversation. I mean, it was it was clear that you were standing at that dissatisfaction, I guess, with just seeing and describing. I think mm-hmm. what you said earlier about everybody says we need a paradigm shift. Okay. That's a description. So what's the explanation that's in that that will allow us to make some choices and some intentional action within it. And that, I think, is another one of the really important distinctions because um, one of the characteristics of the Enlightenment rationality is that the abstraction is sufficient, Mm -hmm. that the narrative is all, that the coherent mental model is the goal and the sufficient end And that that's where we're wanting to get. In this open system, that's not even possible. Because in an open system, it was Gödel who said that you can only have coherence in a closed system. If the system's open, give up on completeness, give up on total coherence. So how do you play that space back and forth? Mm. Mm. Yeah. And it, it kind of uh, very nicely puts us in the direction of, of difference, I think. Maybe that's, that's uh, the hole we could, we could dig into a little bit. Um, because, I mean, it seems to be... I was fortunate enough, let's say, in my journey to, to as I came into this um, space of, of, um, systems thinker. I, I came into it through Fritjof Kapra and his, like he has this online course on the systems view of life, um, which was just lucky. Um, because it's like, there are, there's some hooks there that I tend to hang my, hang my coat on uh, every now and then and, and like revert to. And one of the things that I took from it was that you do want Difference, like difference, is one of the most important parts uh, for us to start um, optimizing for, or, or uh, preserving, rather. Um, 
versus whereas like the the current paradigm and especially the industrial paradigm is is very much uh, in opposition to that. It, it wants to it gives up almost anything to have repeatability and, and to re- reduce difference. That's that's an inherent part of the the system logic. Um, but how do you think of of difference? And then of course like putting that up against coherence as you were just bringing in because we also do need coherence in order to be able to be uh, efficient or actionable or be um, agents. What do I think about difference? That's like the ultimate question. <laughs> um, so there's the, so I'd like to give three responses to that. Is that okay? <laughs> but, um, so the first one is just a, literal, physical, my ninth grade science teacher voice. So difference is potential energy. So whether you're talking about a waterfall or a spring or, I mean, a physical spring, not a water spring, um, or a battery, that each of those holds potential energy because there's some difference in the system. The difference is zero, the energy is zero, and your car doesn't start. We believe that same thing is true of human systems. That the difference in human systems hold potential energy. Mm. Now, the difference is that there's not just one difference that's playing out in any given moment. There are an infinite number of differences that are playing out. And so we have a choice in any moment about which of those differences we're going to focus on. So when you just said, let's talk about difference, you were saying, in all of these things that we're looking at, (laughs) that's a difference that makes a difference to me in this moment. Let's zoom into that. And then suddenly that's where the energy lies in the conversation. So the trick is, in the same way that capturing the energy in thermodynamics was an important transition into the industrial age. Like there was always energy and fire, Hmm. but the ability to harvest that towards some intentional end transformed who we are in the world as human beings, for better and worse. So I believe we're at the same place now with regard to difference in human systems, Hmm. that everybody knows there's a lot of energy in it. And the question is, how do we harvest that for some intentional end that is commonly held and for the good of all? There have been people throughout history who've harvested it for individual good, and there still are, individual good and short-term ends. But we are at a place where we collectively need a way to harvest that energy for the good of all. And I I think that's a lot of where we are in this paradigm. So that's one way to think about difference. It's potential energy. Um, The second thing is to think it's about rationality. What's the first thing you taught your girls when they began to speak, right? How does a cat sound? How does a dog sound? What's up? What's down? Who's mommy? Who's daddy? What All of those, how am I different from it? So the whole structure of cognition is around same and different. 
that's that's what we know. There's nothing else that we know except same and different. Um, and so it is very deeply and fundamentally the nature of knowing. So that's the second thing. <laughs> and the third thing is that it's a lever for change. It is the way that we take action in this world. It's the way that we mediate between the world in which it is potential and the knowing in which we are conscious and that the ability to act on that difference in the moment is what I believe bridges that enlightenment dichotomy, that Cartesian split. So that we can see the difference in the world, know the difference in ourselves and our minds and our social structures, and make choices to harvest the potential from those in a particular place, a particular time. So I think difference is three things. Mm. That's profound. (laughs) Uh. Can I appreciate something from our first? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I don't want to interrupt. No, no, go ahead. I, I got it. I while, while you're processing that, um, when we got off our first call, our prep call, I was so touched because you had repeatedly said it was kind of a refrain. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I've never talked with anyone for whom that was the response and it was so true I mean it's that idea about this coherence it's being really beautiful and it was quite quite touching because for me this way of seeing the world is incredibly beautiful mm-hmm. yeah 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 and and that's perfect because <laughs> in that's where I was headed because I, I was, I was um, trying to integrate um, coherence into those three different um, differences. Like I was trying to kind of, I, I saw the three-legged stool of difference and then I, I was looking for the seat. Um, and maybe you can help me and, and I don't have to. <laughs> really trying to, there's a lot of things going on. I'm having a hard time articulating uh, any of it. That's so lovely because um, that turning in the system of transformation is the turning that what we see in self-organizing, and Prigogine talks about this best, but that a system feeds on its differences and it expands and the anomalies emerge and the system goes what he calls far from equilibrium Mm -hmm. until the difference is just so great. The system can't hold any more difference and then it begins to collapse around its similarities and structure itself based on what is common across the system or what can be reasonable or what can be sorted and sorted, not sorted. 
and that the system then folds in on itself in a new and rich way based on its similarities until it just gets so boring and constrained it can't bear it anymore. (laughs) And then the difference starts to show up and it expands and expands. And this is what mathematicians talk about as the Baker transform. And it is that like when you knead bread, it you stretch it out and then you fold it back and you stretch it and you fold it. And the, the stretching allows the carbon chains to break apart. And then when they fold back in, they reconstruct in mm-hmm. a much more solid structure. And then you stretch it and you fold it. And that process builds a structure inside the bread, which is robust and resilient so that when the bread starts to rise, it doesn't collapse. Mm. So that's why they call it the Baker transform. And the way that we see it here is just exactly what happened in your question. The turning in your question is, yeah, that's, I get, I'm, see, I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it. Oh, that's a little bit too far. How can we fold this back in? What is it about coherence that can bring us back together? And then, oh, thank goodness. And then, oh, oh, here it comes again. Spinning, spinning. And um, that's why I think that uh, aesthetic response about, oh, that's beautiful, is mm-hmm. a kind of folding at a scale that's much deeper than whatever cognitive coherence you can find, that there's a kind of visceral folding that happens mm-hmm. when something is really um, becomes coherent in that way. So that stretching and folding and that. But that is a side point to your question. So anyway, that, that's the coherence that we're seeing. But then what does that mean? Because when it folds in, it isn't like those differences go away. Because if they did, it would just, the whole thing would collapse. Even Spinoza had that problem, right? What do you do with the whole? What do you do with the one? Because the one, if it's just the one, it's nothing. If it's just the many, it's also nothing. So how do you hold this one and many at the same time? And that, I think, is the capacity that we're needing to build to move into this new space. Not not either or or even both and, but mm. which is our focus when and to what degree for what purpose? Mm. So in a moment, is it our job, our need, our passion to focus on the coherence and the ways in which we come together and figuring that out, even if it's a taxonomy or a compromise space or whatever we're looking for? Or is this a moment when difference is really the place that we want to invest our attention? And to have the capacity, the repertoire to be able to work across all of those. So this difference is a this coherence is a really interesting coherence where you know within it there are many, 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 many differences mm-hmm. that are holding the energy, but they're kind of put in the battery to be held, um, and that they can be released at any moment. And that the scale is, too, that this coherence comes in the midst of 
variety that is at much larger scale. So in this very diverse world, in this moment, we're coming together in a coherent space. And in this coherent space, there may be an infinite number of diversities within it. So this idea about multiple scales is not just an accident or a problem of the system. It is the essential nature of its life, which is another one of the like major turnings in this new paradigm, is that it's not that the whole is an interruption of the part or that we need to pick the right scale of analysis or that we have to know which is the most powerful level of action or place of action. But it is instead all of those levels and places are active and potential levers in this massive ecology at many scales and that that's the nature of the system. And our job is to engage with that, dance with that in whatever way is most generative. Uh, not to pick the right scale at which to write the right map about the right thing and the right categories and the right. Mm. Oh, let's see if I, because um, I, I, as, uh, for a while I was like, oh, this, this is like, <laughs> speaking of that, and then I was utterly lost. And then in the end I was like, no, it probably is like, what I'm about to say now, we'll see if it if it is. Uh, but um, I've been doing, uh, I've been engaging in a in a very somatic uh, form of therapy uh, to deal with some of my sort of earliest sort of childhood attachment uh, trauma, um, and I had this sort of incredibly profound experience in one of the sessions. And then the therapist asked me if I wanted to sense make around it. And I stuck with my intuition, which was, no, I don't. Because I, I felt like there was, a, there was a profundity to the, to the lived experience, to the felt experience of it, that if I would have started to put words to it then, it would have been collapsing sort of the depth of my experience. So I was like, I had a, an intuition, let's say, that um, these behaviors or patterns or movements that had arisen in me that I'd felt and experienced then had so much to do with so many different identities and so many different sort of expressions that are available in my life right now and so many different contexts that I'm engaging with, so many of, of those sort of, yeah, people that I am, um, that if I would have started talking about them too soon, then an indirect relation ship to the therapy because then I had, I mean, I, I walked in with a specific thing in mind that I wanted to, to address. Uh, I would have reduced the potential of it. And so at the moment, I'm still sort of, you know, six months later, kind of picking the fruits of, of like that profound experience, that, that profound uh, difference, if you will, or like that, that movement that was there. And then there are all these like different interpretations that are uh, coming out of it. So there's like, um, I don't really know how to tie it together, but there's something around that that made me that made me sort of it triggered that feeling in me as you were speaking, and I can't explicitly make the connection, but it, I think it's there somewhere. Um, that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. 
It is, I think, the same dynamic. And the fact that once you had had that experience in its manifold reality and you let it kind of ripen and mature, then you may be able to collapse it here and see its context there. As you talk about harvest the fruits of it once it's had a chance to mature. But if you try to harvest it before it's had a chance to kind of yeah, mature that's the only word I can think of and it's multiplicity it would it's very fragile but today six months later it's much more resilient and robust and you can afford to say oh it's like what Glenda just said yeah, and it doesn't go away it stays there um, yes. that's so beautiful and there's a way that it kind of ties back to where we started talking about the paradigm shifts where I'm, I'm like putting myself a little bit on the edge there, like curiously exploring um, if, if we are in one. <laughs> like, and and I, I really feel like we are, yet I know that that feeling isn't yet underpinned for me by knowing. And so um, I, I find that a lot of the explanations that I'm feeling that, that are coming right now of this paradigm shift that we're in are actually premature. Like it's, it's a premature search of, of coherence, but I, I believe that we need more difference first. Like we need, we need more tension and more potentiality in the system, as you so beautifully put it, before we start to try to collapse it. Like it's not ripe to collapse yet. That's, that's kind of my... Oh, interesting. That's quite interesting. It makes sense a lot of many of the pieces I've been thinking about as well. And one of the pathways that we've been taking, I'm teaching a class right now that's called the Dragons of Complexity. Mm-hmm. And, and what we do there is to look at the fundamental assumptions that are shifting in this new paradigm. And the question that I'm holding is whether that is a premature collapse or whether it's a bridge to the new. So I'll I'll hold that question. But for example, some of those assumptions that are different, and this is another thing that um, is characteristic of paradigm shift, is that the questions that you ask before it are not relevant after it. Yeah. That you just have a whole different set of questions. And so, as you're thinking about this uh, expanded, high potential possibility of a paradigm shift, the questions that you're asking about it or in it are the other side of it. Mm. Mm. So that the the you don't tell a paradigm shift really by the answers that come from it, but more by the questions that you can ask within it. And, and so some of the questions uh, and the dragons that we're seeing, like fundamental shifts um, about time not being a line, that precision doesn't always give you accuracy. 
that by getting smaller and smaller and smaller units of measure, you may get less accurate results yeah. in a complex system. Um, that the beginning is never really the beginning and the end is never really the end. But I'm wondering whether those are ways of knowing in that open space or whether it's a premature collapse. I'm, I think maybe it's a way to understand, to reframe the differences that appear in that more high dimension space. Yeah. That's what it feels like. It That feels like a useful inquiry in terms of um, like dialing up the resolution, if you will. So like, there's the other, like, I don't know. I spoke to, um, I spoke to Indy Johar a few weeks back on the podcast and he was kind of pointing to, let's, let's throw all the computational power that we have into the space of accounting so that we can really start accounting for like minimal things. And, and I was curious by that. And then I was at the same time kind of resisting the, resisting it a little bit because I've had this idea that's been feeling like it should, it lives somewhere in me around sort of the analog nature, the continuous nature of nature <laughs> and the digital nature of, of digital things um, and how, how to reconcile those two. Like, are we able to, because they seem to be two different orders um, and, and two different types. And so are we able to solve the one and the other and vice versa? And he was proposing like with enough resolution, there would be a, a, a quantum shift. There would be a shift in, in how we, um, perceive that. And I, in a way, I perceive your questions to maybe be getting at that shift. It feels like they could be and without sort of knowing that or having any good other fundamental reason for it other than that it feels right um, in, in how you present them in ways. It's interesting. I'm going to be seeing him next week and I would like to dive into this question with him because um, often increasing rev resolution requires that you privilege a particular scale. Mm. And that by selecting a particular scale or particular set of differences, you're privileging them. And so you're predefining the boundaries of what you can know in that. And so there's sometimes, I think when increasing resolution can be exactly what you need to get a more comprehensive picture of the whole. But there are also times where what the interesting stuff that's happening is at a completely different scale yeah, or a completely different set of differences yeah. that are the ones yeah, yeah. that are the most interesting and you're preoccupied with looking at the ones because they're under the street lamp. Right. Um, and I think that's the risk of over-depending on uh, the digital world. So your your inquiry around what what's the real capacity of a digital way of knowing and what are its limits? And what's the capacity of a continuous way of knowing and what are its limits? It's a really good... It sounds to me like an other side of the paradigm question. Yeah. I find very few people that find it interesting 
<laughs> I'm usually dismissed when I ask that question. <laughs> so, so maybe, yeah. <laughs> That's very funny. Or maybe we're just both crazy in the same way. I don't know. <laughs> right, I think. <laughs> That's the risk, right? It's like the... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. So interestingly enough, it was the same question that drove Newton's calculus. Not hmm. so much Leibniz's calculus, but yeah, same question that drove that paradigm shift. Hmm. So we're still in the same paradigm shift in another scale then, right? <laughs> yeah. If this yeah, is true, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, or at least at least it uh, rhymes if it isn't the same. At least it's a rhyming true. shift. Yeah. So I think I think I'm sufficiently lost um, right now to, to <laughs> call it a day. Oh my I'm goodness! This has been this has been a very deep and wide uh, swim. Uh, thank you, and I uh, think I'm sufficiently lost too. So that's good. It feels good. <laughs> it's always always good, and <laughs> and to bring it back to the to the very concrete uh, and to the very material. If if people want to interact with you or um, learn more about the tools that you were were kind of sprinkling this conversation with these these wonderful tools uh, or engage with with you or the institute, where where do they look and and what why should they look? Um, Thank you for that question. So our website is www.hsdinstitute.org, Human Systems Dynamics, hsdinstitute.org. We have many different ways to enter the work. The most deep dive is certification training. And we have an online program and a face-to-face program, both starting in August. And it's an intensive first dive into the HSD practices and then four months of collective practice online. And so it's uh, building a community and moving into a different way of seeing the world. So that's the deepest dive. We also have a series of what we call adaptive action labs where people bring their most wicked issues and we share with them particular mid-level tools that are useful, sprinkling in some of the broader theory, but really practice-oriented exercises. We're going to be doing a new Dragon series where we look at six of these fundamental shifts and assumptions that we believe lead into the more complex paradigm. Uh, We're going to be starting that in October. And then we have some free engagements that are really fun. Daily, we have a practice that's called the power of inquiry, power of questions. Inquiry is the answer. And for 30 minutes every day, someone brings a wicked issue. We ask them questions that they don't answer, and then they reflect on how that transformed them. So it is a 30-minute exercise in stretching. So you begin with wherever you're stuck, stretching Mm -hmm. with the questions, and then folding back into what the world looks like differently at the end, that's free, open to anyone who wants to come every day, Monday through Friday. Um, We also have free monthly live virtual workshops where I take a topic or a challenge or a particular insight I've had and for an hour dig into and explore and swim around in it. Um, 
And we have quarterly meetings where members of our community come together and share what they're learning and doing. And uh, it's very fun to hear the variety. We have people in all different disciplines, all different levels of action and uh, paradigms of work and how they apply this work wherever they are and whatever they're doing, they come quarterly to share. Mm. So there are many ways to be engaged. So if someone wants more information, wants to be on the web, on the mailing list, just info at hsdinstitute.org and join the conversation. Beautiful. Thank you. And I, I just heard you, when you heard you speak to those um, inquiry, uh, the, the freeing, the power of questions um, inquiries, I, I was like, kind of planted this idea that that it seems like the stretching is more of a collective exercise and maybe the folding gets to be individual in a way. That, and how beautiful that is because it, because of the freedom and like the, you know, we, the, that way we deal with a lot of the dominance and the control and the violence that's going on in the current system by, by uh, liberating people to, to make sense of it on their own. And then when they stretch again, they will come back into the community. And I, I don't know if I heard that right or if that's a misinterpretation on my side, but it's nice. That's lovely. That is the experience that I have in the space. Thanks for wording it in that way. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Glenda. This was, this was fun and I'm going to really enjoy listening to this as I'm editing the podcast and, and figure out what we actually talked about. Um, but yeah, I have no, <laughs> well, no, no doubt about this usefulness. It's, it's in a really good way uh, that I'm looking forward to, to look back on this. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I appreciate the questions that you've seeded in me from this conversation. So thank you very much. 